to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. The scripture will be on the screen. Uh, but if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. And also, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning or a device on which you can read the Bible, there should be a Bible close to you in the pew. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would invite you to take one of those Bibles and, and let that be our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy uh, of God's Word to read and to study and to refer to. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 this morning, we're working through the first 11 chapters of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And the goal of this series, and, and really in many ways the teaching ministry here at Back Creek Church, is to move us from uh, mere familiarity with the stories of the Bible uh, to seeing and engaging with the one story that the Bible is telling through all those stories from beginning to end. And we're calling this series in Genesis Origins. Uh, because Genesis tells us the origins of everything. It's foundational in helping us answer the big questions of existence. It helps us see and engage with the one story that makes sense of the world and our lives and our longings as we experience them. In Genesis 1, we saw that a, a good God, out of nothing, created a good world, and he placed good people in his good world for them to enjoy. In Genesis 2, we saw how that good God loved the good people that he had created and lavished upon them good gifts, a good pattern for life, a pattern of, of work and rest that God embedded into the very rhythm of creation for the good of his people, a good personhood. Uh, with worth and dignity and beauty in both body and soul for every person. A good place. He gave them a paradise, a garden where every need was met with perfect provision. A good promise that if these people, this couple, if they believed God, if they loved God, and if they obeyed His word, that they would live with Him forever in perfect happiness. And a good partnership a human relationship where there, were, uh, there was no shame, there were no barriers, there were no uh, lies or deception, there was nothing that stood between husband and wife and they could be fully themselves and fully secure, fully known and fully loved. And all of that in Genesis 1 and 2 explains a lot. It explains why we have this sense, though uh, nature can be really bad, with earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and fires, that we still have this sense that creation is still somehow good. It explains why as terrible as people can be, and we've seen that all throughout human history and we see it in ourselves, that we still have this sense that people are innately and indelibly at some level good. It explains why we long for meaningful work and real rest. While we long for other people to recognize our worth and our significance and our dignity, it explains why we long for a beautiful place, a haven where we are secure and where we are provided for. It explains why we long for a life. Even though we've only lived in a world where death is the reality for every person, we long for a world in which life somehow goes beyond death. 
And it explains why we long for deep human relationships full of mutual love and acceptance and affirmation. Genesis 1 and 2 explains a lot about the world, about our lives, and about our longings as they are. What these first two chapters of Genesis don't explain is what went wrong. Why is there such a disconnect? Why is there such a gulf between our longings and our experience? Why is there such a sense in our heart that the world is good, that that we are good, that we should live forever in a place that is perfect? Why Why is that so different from the lives we actually live, live in the world that actually is? And that's what we find in Genesis chapter 3. So as we go to God's Word, I'd ask you if you are able to please stand in honor of God's Word. And we'll read together Genesis 3, the whole chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, 
The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's ask the Lord for his help this morning. Oh Lord, our God, we believe that this is a true story. This tells us the origin of sin, of our rebellion against you, and the consequences thereof. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that this is our story, but it's not the end of our story. Lord, help us see in Jesus the remedy for all that we have wrought. Lord, we do love you. And we pray this morning that you would help us to see you as you are, to see ourselves as we are, and to see that Christ has come to make us new. Lord, we do love you, and we we pray that your word would speak to your people now. For their sake and for your glory, we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Shannon and I are are watching uh, a, a television show right now. It's about a a young surgeon, uh, and, and one of the challenges that this young resident surgeon has is that he also has autism. Um, and so not only does he have to deal with all of the uh, educational and the medical challenges of, of becoming a surgeon, uh, he also has to deal with some internal and external and relational uh, challenges that come with uh, his autism. Uh, and last night, as he was dealing kind of with this particular issue in all of those dimensions, he said this. He said, the world is sad and complicated. I wish it wasn't. The world is sad and complicated. I wish it wasn't. Do you resonate with that? The world is a sad place. The world is a a complicated place. And if, if God is good and his creation is good and it is filled with God's loving and good gifts, what went wrong? Why is nothing in our experience like our longings tell us it should be? Why is there a disconnect between what we desire for the world and and for our lives and what our lives in the world are actually like? Well, Genesis 3 tells us, and in one word, sin. Sin is rebellion against God either by falling short of what his word demands or by transgressing what his word commands. A rebellion is an attack or an assault. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. God's enemy, Satan, in the form of a serpent, launches an attack against God through temptation and through sin. And through the actions of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we join the side of the evil one in this rebellion. What Genesis 3 tells us is that sin is an attack on God. Sin is an attack against God. And we see this in at least three ways here in this chapter. The first way that sin attacks God. Sin attacks by denying God's goodness. Sin attacks by denying God's goodness. Let me just say this. It's really important for us to understand how sin and how Satan work right here in Genesis chapter 3 because they've never changed. 
Satan and sin work exactly the same way in our lives that they worked for our first parents in the garden. And the first way that sin attacks God and God's image bearers is by denying God's goodness. Satan, the serpent, he hates God. He knows that God is good and he despises God for his goodness and therefore he also despises those whom God created in his image. And the worst way that Satan knows of to hurt God and to hurt God's image bearers is to, through temptation and sin, seek to persuade us that God is not good, that God does not love us, that God is not looking out for us. And he does this in this chapter and in our lives, first by denying God's command. He denies God's goodness by denying God's good commands. In verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? Is that what God said? Is that what God said? No, no. Quite the opposite, in fact. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And again in chapter 2, it says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden except for one. God, in his goodness and love, had given humanity all the food that we could ever consume. Everything that we needed, both for life, to sustain life, but also for enjoyment of food. We were meant to taste God's goodness in the daily food that he provided for us. And Satan wants to deny God's goodness. So he seeks to plant doubts in Eve about God's command. Couldn't help but overhear, Eve. And I'm kind of shocked, to be honest with you, that God would create all this beauty and bounty, all this good food, and not let you enjoy any of it. Is that what I heard God say? That you can't eat of any of these trees? Well, Eve knew what God had said. But at this point, she probably began to wonder, like we do when Satan comes to us and denies God's command. Is that what God said? That we should not eat of any? No, I know what God said. God said that we can eat of any tree except for that one. But is that what God meant? Maybe, maybe there's room for interpretation more than I thought. Maybe God wasn't entirely clear what he meant. And I find it interesting that in this particular case, and I think this shows up in our lives as well, that in order to deny God's command, Satan's lie about God's prohibition is not more restrictive than God's command. It's more permissive. Satan here is not more liberal than God. He's more conservative than God. The truth is that we can sin by being more permissive than God or by being more restrictive than what God's word says. On the liberal side, Christians will excuse behavior that they know has been explicitly condemned in God's word as sinful because the time is different. The culture is different. Our circumstances are different. Or, to be honest, at a base level, they just want to keep doing what it is that they're doing. But on the conservative side, Christians will add to God's word 
to prohibit things which are not restricted in God's commands. And what that does is it robs us of enjoying the goodness of God that we are meant to taste in good things that he has given to us. Liberalism denies God's command by saying that God has not given to us the things that we really need. So we have to go outside of God's word to get them. Well, legalism denies God's command by saying that God's command does not go far enough and that we should restrict even more. And that's the kind of denial that God's command that Satan uses here. And it works. For a little while, it seems like Eve is going to hold strong. She gives an answer in verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Yes, good job, Eve. You got it right. But then Eve follows the serpent. And she gets interpretively creative with God's command. And she adds to it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Last Sunday after worship, uh, my youngest daughter, Noah Kate, she, uh, she had a really good question. She said, God, uh, Dad, if God is good, and if uh, all the things that he made were good, and the people that he made were good, and everything was good, why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did he put it there? Because obviously if he put it there, then we would have the opportunity to sin against him, to rebel against him and make everything bad. I said, Noah Kate, that's a good question. What do you want to eat for lunch? (laughs) The answer, of course, is that like all things, God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for our good. God is good, and God does good. All of his commands are for our good. And uh, Dr. Jack Collins, one of my professors at Covenant Seminary, I think he does a really good job of explaining why it is that God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Um, So I'm going to read to you just from what he wrote about it. God intended that through this tree, humans would come to know good and evil either from above as masters of temptation or from below as slaves to sin. The tree of knowledge was to lead man to the knowledge of good and evil. And according to the divine intention, this was to be attained through his not eating of the fruit. The end was to be accomplished not only by his discerning in the prohibition, the difference between that which accorded with the will of God and that which opposed it, but also by coming eventually through obedience to the prohibition to recognize that all that is opposed to the will of God is an evil to be avoided. And through voluntary resistance to such evil, to the full development of the freedom of choice originally imparted to him in the actual freedom of a deliberate and self-conscious choice of good. In other words, that God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, to teach us about good and evil through obedience and through the personal and self-determinative choice of obedience, we would attain to the full liberty that he intended for us. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't a bad thing in the garden. It was a good thing intended by God for the good of his people. And in this way, by proper self-determination, would gradually have advanced to the possession of truest liberty. But as he failed to keep this divinely appointed way, 
and ate the forbidden fruit in opposition to the command of God, the power imparted by God to the fruit was manifested in a different way. The man learned the difference between good and evil from his own guilty experience. And by receiving evil into his own soul, fell victim to the threatened death. Thus through his own fault, the tree which should have helped him attain true freedom, brought nothing but a sham liberty of sin, and with it, death. God demonstrates his goodness to us in his commands, which are always and only for our good. That's why it's so important for us, brothers and sisters, to read God's word, to know what God does command and what God does not command. In his word, we come to know God's goodness and what is good for us. The serpent will try to deny God's command and he'll seek to make us more permissive or more restrictive than God's word. He'll seek to make us either more liberal or more conservative than God. But if we know God's word, then we can fight him with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Sin denies God's goodness by denying God's command. The second thing we see here, Satan denies God's goodness by denying God's credibility. Look at verse 4. Even though Eve has already made the mistake of adding to God's good command, she is clear and right about the consequences of transgressing it by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She knows what's going to happen. What are the consequences of disobedience? Death. Right, The wages of sin is death. Physical death and spiritual death forever. God said in Genesis 2.17 of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Satan's first step in temptation and sin at the beginning and now is to deny God's command. The second step that Satan takes is to try to convince them and us that God lied. He says, you will not surely die. Now central to the goodness of our creator God is that he is truth, that he cannot and he will not ever lie. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie. In Titus chapter 1, Paul is writing to his friend and he says this, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And in Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. By contrast to God who will not and cannot ever lie, sin and Satan constantly lie. Jesus, speaking of Satan in John 8, 44, says this, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan and sin will lie to you, and they will especially lie to you about God about his goodness, about his credibility, about his, unworth- I mean, about his trustworthiness. 
If you have suffered, and, and some of us have more than others, aren't you familiar with those subtle denials of God's credibility? He has forsaken you. He doesn't care what you're going through. He has left you all alone. If you've sinned, and all of us have in millions of ways, aren't you familiar with those not-so-subtles attacks on God's credibility? God cannot love you now. You're disgusting. There's no way that God could forgive you again. How many times have you asked for forgiveness from God for this horrible act? If you've been tempted, and we all have, even more than we have sinned, aren't you familiar with those subtle denials of God's credibility? Come on. It's not that bad. It's not like you're doing what those people are doing. It's just a a little sinful. And besides, you're not hurting anybody. You will not surely die. Sin denies God's goodness by denying God's command and by denying God's credibility. And thirdly, we see here that Sin denies God's goodness by denying God's character. Look at verse 5. Basically, Satan says here that God is selfish. He, only, he wants to be the only one with the power of the knowledge of good and evil. He does not want you to eat of that tree because he wants to keep you down while he is up. Satan and sin will try to make you doubt that God's character, that his will And that his disposition toward you are good. When your circumstances are difficult or you are wrestling with a command, a prohibition in God's word, it can be tempting to believe that God is doing something in your life to be mean to you or to deprive you from something. But nothing could be further from the truth. And the rock that we have to hold on to, whether in trial or in temptation, is the unchanging goodness and the unchanging character of our God. God is good, and he does good. God's intent for Adam and Eve was to become more like him, but to do so through trust and obedience rather than through suspicion and disobedience. Denying God's command and his credibility and his character, sin attacks God by denying his goodness. The second thing that we see here is that sin attacks by deceiving God's people. Sin attacks by deceiving God's people. We see that in verse 6. Thomas Brooks was was an English preacher in the 17th century. He wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I commend it to you. You can find the whole thing online. It's rather short and super helpful. But he writes this. Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device, he deceived our first parents. Satan promises the soul honor, profit, and pleasure, but pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be. Satan begins the deception by promising that Adam and Eve will have their eyes open, that they will know things, and that they will be like God. 
But sinful desire takes over from there as Eve becomes enchanted with the bait. Sin promises to taste good when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Sin looks good and that it was a delight to the eyes. Sin promises to feel good and that the tree was desired to make one wise. This is the bait. And Satan is not only content for us to bite into the bait and get the hook, but he also tempts us to share it with others as well. It's not enough just for us to take the bait, but to offer it to other people as well, to do his bidding for him. The scriptures tell us that who was there with Eve? Her husband, Adam. He saw everything and she gave it to him and he ate. Satan and sin aim to deceive us by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. And this is an area where God's people can help each other. The scriptures tell us that Adam was there with his wife while all this was happening, but he didn't speak up. He didn't challenge this, the serpent's deception or the denials of God's goodness. He didn't speak truth to the lies that Satan told Eve. And now that Eve is transfixed by the taste good, look good, feel good, bait... Adam is passive. She bites the bait and then hands it to him. And he is likewise deceived and he eats as well. Adam could have helped any time during that point until he took the bite, but he refused. And in contrast, the author of Hebrews tells us, the church... In chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin denies God's goodness. It deceives his people. This is why our core value as a church of deep connection is so important. When we're deeply connected with other people, we let them into our lives and they can see where temptation strikes us. They know what besetting sins we struggle with and they can ask us the hard questions that help us fight against Satan's denials and his lies. Who is that for you here at Back Creek? What individual, what group helps you fight temptation and sin and Satan by holding you accountable? By encouraging you with God's word. Sin attacks by denying God's goodness, by deceiving God's people. And lastly, we see that sin attacks by distorting God's good gifts. Sin attacks by distorting God's gifts. Last week, we looked at all the beautiful and good gifts that God gave to humanity at creation. And we see that sin distorts and threatens to destroy those gifts. First, God gave the gift of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to His people that they might learn uh, His goodness through obedience. But they used it instead to attain to something that was not for them. And they learned through disobedience, this distortion of God's good gift. But we see also that God had given Adam and Eve a good partnership in marriage. They were physically emotionally and spiritually naked with each other and they felt no what? Shame. We all long for that, that we would be fully known, fully loved and have a human relationship where there's no shame. But as soon as they sinned, they felt shame for the first time. Immediately, they could no longer stand to be naked, not even with each other. So they began to take fig leaves and try to cover themselves up. 
As soon as God asked Adam if he had disobeyed, what does Adam do? He blames his wife. This woman that you gave to be with me, she's the one, she's the problem. And God says, well, what is this that you have done? And she says, I'm not the problem, the snake is the problem. He deceived me and I ate. As a result of sin, the birth of the children that their partnership produced would be painful to Eve and there would be strife in their marriage and in all human relationships. Though God gave us a good partnership to enjoy, sin inverts that partnership and makes it a difficulty. God had given humanity a good personhood. He gave us glory and honor and dignity because we were made in His image and in His likeness. But sin drove God's people. We're supposed to be a reflection of who God is by living in His presence. But sin drove us to run and hide from Him in fear and shame and then to treat one another as if we are not bearers of the divine image. God had given humanity a good pattern of work and rest But sin causes work to be difficult and frustrating. Look at verse 17 and 18. And the first part of verse 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Because of sin, work is frustrating. Amen? And rest is elusive. God had given humanity a good promise that if we obeyed Him, if we believed Him and loved Him more than anything else, we would live forever in His presence. But sin brought the intruder and the enemy of death into the world. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God had given humanity a good place, a paradise with never-ending provision, but sin drove us out of the garden, away from the paradise that God made for us. If God is good, And his creation is good. If it's filled with God's loving and good gifts for his image bearers, what went wrong? The story Genesis tells is the only story that makes sense of the disconnect between our longings for a world we've never known and the world that we actually experience. We all know innately we had it all. We were made for it all, and we lost it all through our sinful rebellion against God. The good news of great joy that shall be for all people is though we were made for it all, and we had it all, and we lost it all, God means for us to have it all again and more. He has done everything necessary for that to happen through Jesus The Apostle John writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That is why Jesus came. He came to free us from sin's penalty and power. To restore to us and in us everything that was lost in the fall. To reconcile rebellious children to their loving Father. 
And he did this through his human life of absolute goodness. He did it through his death on the cross that atoned for our sins and reconciled us to God. And he did it through his resurrection, which guarantees the restoration of all things. If you want to be reconciled to God today through Jesus Christ, all you need is to feel your need of him and cry out to him in faith. Forgive my sins and redeem me. He loves to answer that prayer. He is who he said he was. He will forgive your sins. He will make you a new creation. He will give you hope and a future. And what you need to realize is that even on the worst day of humanity until the cross, that God, in the midst of cursing the serpent and the woman and marriage and the man and the ground, that God made a promise. Did you hear it? That he's going to make all the wrong things right. That he's going to make the sad things come untrue. That he is going to destroy the works of the devil through the offspring of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Today we have heard the bad news of the gospel. And next week we're going to hear once again the good news of the gospel promised here in Genesis 3.15. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Let's thank God for his word today. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we honor you for the word that announces our salvation, for your word which through your commands reveals to us your goodness. Lord, we are your people today and we are assaulted on every side by the world, by our flesh, and by the devil. Lord, we would ask today that you would help us to see how sin and how Satan work. Lord, that it, we would see that what he is at work doing in our lives is denying your goodness. And Lord, help us through the gospel to fix our eyes on your goodness, on all that you have done for us, to see your commands for what they are as your intention for our goodness, to see your gifts for what they are as not as something to be worshipped, but as a means by which we worship our creator. Lord, help us to fight against Satan and against sin and against shame because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Lord, help us today to cling to what is true about us and about you. We ask these things humbly and expectantly, Lord, that you will use them to transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand once more and respond to God's word in song.